wanted to, I wanted to start off today by um, telling a little story, or maybe it's maybe it's partly a story, partly a confession. I'm not sure. <laughs> so it's something that God has been doing in, in in my life, and you know, I didn't even really notice it until the Holy Spirit reminded me of this. So um, most of you know I work a, a secular job, and so I work down in Franklin, and um, I have to drive an hour there and an hour back every day. Sometimes I can make it in 45 minutes, but you didn't hear that from me. Uh, so historically, and my wife will probably attest to this, um, I, have, I try patience when I run into traffic. I try, I really do, but it's one I've been struggling with. And so, you know, as many of you commuters know that once the school year starts up again, so does the traffic. I mean, it, for some reason, it just kicks it up a notch. Uh, maybe all the school buses out there, I'm not sure. But when the school year starts up, the traffic starts up. And this year, after the school year started up, I remember there was a, a week where the first three days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, it took me an hour and a half to get to work, over an hour and a half every morning. And so it was just gridlocked. You know, every morning there was an accident or multiple accidents and the whole freeway was closed and it was just a mess. And um, I remember on the third day, the third day was the worst because normally, I, and this is just my philosophy, but in, it, this has been proven out with experience. I've been, I've been on the freeway and I've decided to try and get off and get on the side streets and then maybe get back on later. Well, I found out that that never works. So my philosophy is just to stay on the freeway and just ride it out. You know, no pun intended. Um, but for some reason this time, I mean, we were at a dead stop for a really long time. So I try, you know, I decided, well, I'm going to break that, that rule and I'm going to try and get off the freeway. So I get off the freeway. Uh, it's somewhere downtown. Um, and... Have you ever seen those movies where, you know, like maybe the president or somebody important is coming through and you, you see people riding through traffic and then all of a sudden all these, all these squad cars and, and uh, police motorcycles swoop in to block off the street so that the, the dignitary or whoever can get through? Well, I had no sooner gotten off the freeway and I'm going down this little side street when all these, you know, police motorcycles swoop in and block off the street. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. I, you know, I, I've been blocked every way I go, you know, and, uh, and I just had to sit there and I just had to laugh, you know, and I fortunately had my phone out and I got Google Maps and it showed me a different way to go. And so I finally made my way down to work, down to Franklin, just using side streets. Um, but as I was going that last day, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and reminded me and said, you know what? You would have really lost your cool, especially this being the third day and especially trying to get off the freeway, freeway and have your, your alternative route blocked as well. This is something that would have turned on K-Love and just kept on going. God is still working in my life. And believe me, <clears throat> that's not the only area. That's just the one, that is just the one that I, that I uh, prepared to share with you this morning. 
<laughs> we'll leave the rest for another time. <clears throat> but God is still working in my life. And for me, I am still growing and still maturing in the Lord. No matter what my calling is in life, it doesn't matter whether I'm a pastor or not. I'm still growing. It doesn't matter if I've been serving the Lord two years or 20 years. I'm still growing. And God said, you know what? That's the life of a disciple. That is the life of a disciple. We continue to follow. We continue to watch. We continue to learn. We continue to grow. And so the scripture I want to share with you this morning is out of Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 16. It says, As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Jesus called a group of fishermen to basically abandon their old lives and to come and follow after him. And so let's take just a, a moment to unpack this portion of Scripture because I think there's just a, a few short verses, but there's so much that we can take from this. The first thing that I notice is the first four disciples Jesus calls are fishermen, right? Simon and Andrew are casting a fishing net into the sea and and James and John are out there, and they're, they're in their boat, and they're repairing their net. Not Pharisees. He didn't look for Sadducees. He didn't Jesus didn't uh, look for uh, Pharisees. He didn't look for Sadducees. He didn't look for scribes. He didn't look for Bible college students. He found fishermen. And those are the ones that he called. So that just goes to show you that God doesn't just call pastors to discipleship or worship leaders to discipleship. He calls all of us to discipleship. But Jesus, he simply asks them to follow him. I believe that that's what he's asking us today. Now the word follow here really has a double meaning. Um, the first is really to just take a position behind someone, to come after someone, to, to physically follow them. But there's also a meaning of a person who follows another in regard to their, his or her ideas or their beliefs. A disciple would have been one who physically followed around a rabbi or a teacher, observing them and listening to their teaching. Jesus was calling them to spend time with him, to do life with him, and to learn from him and become like him. And the interesting thing is, is Jesus, Jesus modeled that same model with the Father. If you look at Scripture in John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in like manner. 
John chapter 8, uh, verse 28 says, Jesus says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So Jesus modeled this concept of discipleship, and now He's calling the, the very first disciples to follow after Him in the same manner. He chose 12 men to follow after him, to listen to his teaching, and watch how he lived and ministered to the people. Um, Rice Brooks, uh, who wrote the Purple Book, you might know this quote, he says, to be a Christian is to be a disciple. That's what we are. We're disciples. Disciple, a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. And believe me, I'm still learning. I just demonstrated that. Um, come for and make disciples. So we're supposed to perpetuate this process, right? Jesus modeled it with the Father. He called these 12 men to follow him and learn from him in like manner. And then as he's about to ascend to the Father, he charges them. You know what I did with you? Now I want you to go out into the world and do that with everybody else. Which includes us. Right? Turn to your neighbor and say, I am a disciple of Christ. I think that it's, it's really important that we get this. Jesus commanded us to become disciples and then lead others to become disciples. See, Paul understood this, and he got the process, because even in uh, the First Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthians, he writes, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Right? So Paul knew it. He's perpetuating the same process. Now, Paul, uh, of all people, would have understood this process, this idea of becoming a follower or a disciple, because this would have been very familiar to the Jews in Jesus' time. And we know that Paul was Saul and he was a Pharisee and he learned the same way as all the other Pharisees did. Students of Scripture in that day would not study independently. They wouldn't go to a Bible college and just study independently and take tests and um, write papers. So he would not study as we envision the modern-day students. See, rabbis back then would have had students that followed them. They would, not, they would not only lecture, but they would teach by example. Back then, even the students uh, might uh, complete menial tasks for the rabbi. Like, he, you know, if they had coffee back then, he might have said, hey, go get me a coffee and a, and a bagel for breakfast. And they would have done it, kind of like a, a personal assistant or something like that. Um. I think we've kind of lost this, this true definition of what a disciple or a follower was back then. Today, our definition of follower only extends to social media, right? You know, we, we can follow each other on Facebook and we can follow each other on Twitter so that uh, I can be notified when one of my friends takes a picture of their lunch and says, look how good this is, or, or put some sort of meme on there. Is that how you say it? Meme, right? They put some sort of meme on there that's supposed to be fun. 
and a day. That's our idea of follow. And a disciple. What it means to be a disciple, it doesn't really truly have a parallel in modern society. Maybe like an apprentice in a skilled trade or something like that, but that's as close as we can get. So it's kind of a foreign concept to us in some respects. As evangelical Christians, I think that when we hear the word disciple, we still think of those four fishermen 2,000 years ago. When I say the word disciple, I think, oh yeah, the, the 12 disciples. I'm thinking Peter and John and James. But when I hear the word disciple, the first person that should come to mind is me. Of course, this then begs the question, what does it mean to be a modern-day disciple of Christ? Going back to the scripture that we read at the beginning, we learned that we can expect two things as disciples. Hope you're excited about this. Thanks. Number one, there's a cost. Now can I get a woo? <laughs> there is a cost. There's a cost to, to discipleship. But number two, our lives will be changed. Now that should get a woo. Yeah, okay. There was a cost for each of them to respond to Jesus' call. They left their businesses, they left their livelihood, their means for providing, and they left their families, right? For James and John, you know, um, it seemed that though it was the family business, as Mark records, that they left their father Zebedee just standing there in the boat. They're like, see you later, Dad. He's still standing there. Mark also alludes to the fact, you know, going back to this passage of Scripture, that they were probably doing reasonably well for themselves because they were able to uh, afford to pay hired servants. So maybe we think of these guys as, you know, um, poverty-stricken people, but they weren't. They were probably lower to middle class people. And they had successful fishing businesses. Notice that in, in both accounts of Jesus calling each pair of brothers... The word immediate appears. It keeps popping up. Immediate, immediately, immediately. And so this kind of hints to the fact that, you know, um, when he called them, there was no hesitation. They didn't have to think about it. There's no discussion or debate. Do you think this guy is really the Messiah? I don't know. I'm, what, what are you hearing from other people? There was no preparation of me to follow him. Is that all right? I used to say, as, as one author writes, both pairs of brothers found obedience to the call of Christ costly. It meant abandonment of all they held dear and all earthly security. I think that's a big one. All earthly security. They left behind security, right? In simple committal to Christ. Jesus didn't mince words. Discipleship would be costly. In Luke 9.23, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a cost involved. Jesus didn't, didn't hide that fact. Now, to deny oneself in this context, it, it means to really just to act uh, in a wholly selfless manner. And I like how another, another biblical scholar um, defined it. He said, uh, to forget oneself. To deny oneself means to forget oneself. 
to lose sight of oneself and one's own interests. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and he says, self-denial is never just a series of isolated acts of mortification or asceticism, meaning it's never just a, an, an isolated a series of isolated incidences of maybe, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast this Monday and I'm going to fast this Tuesday or I'm going to give this or I'm going to give up that. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. Because, see, you can bounce back and forth, right? In this moment, I'm going to be, I'm going to truly give up something. I'm going to deny myself something. But then when this hour of fasting over, or day of fasting is over, or week of fasting is over, uh, I'm going to eat whatever I want, and I'm just going to go right back to what I was doing before, right? So he says, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more to self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. See, as human beings, we all have a tendency to live as though we each were the center of our own universe, right? That's kind of our human nature. The world revolves around Chris. Our priorities are ordered according to our own needs and wants, right? We prioritize the things that we want to do, that we need to do. Our beliefs are shaped by our own wisdom and our own view of the world, our version of truth is based upon, and you can see this on social media all the time, our version of truth is based upon how we perceive or want to perceive reality. Our righteousness is self-righteousness as we set our own ethical standards and justify our own choices, right? I'm a good person. I didn't, I've never killed anybody. That may be your ethical standard, but that's not God. Our love is selfish and contingent upon how another person makes us feel or what another person has done to us or for us. And that's the kind of life that we live before we come to know the Lord. But then God begins to speak to us. And we begin to feel the emptiness and the lack of true fulfillment that living that way brings. Or maybe it's just that he makes us conscious of the feeling that has always been there. You see, I remember, I remember before I seriously began to serve the Lord. And God came to me one morning in a dream, and, and, and I'm just being perfectly transparent that it was a Saturday morning and I had been out, out carousing the night before, to put it PC. Uh, and I was thinking about, you know, maybe some of the stupid things I had done or, you know, the, probably the, the money that I had wasted. And I was thinking to myself, what am I doing? I feel so empty. I feel like my life is going nowhere. And that morning, God came to me in a dream. And I remember it vividly. And probably some of you have heard this story before, but 
God came to me in a dream. And, you know, I had been wrestling this for, with, with this for, God was speaking to me for like weeks and weeks. And, and, and I had been wrestling to this. And this is when it just came to a head. And he came to me in a dream. And, and in this dream, I was in a very, I was in a, a room that was black. It was dark. And I was at a, a funeral, the funeral of my, my grandfather who had passed away really decades earlier. And I remember looking around and I saw death and I saw people's somber faces. Everybody was dressed in black. Everybody was depressed. Everybody was sorrowful. And then somebody came to me and said, hey, do you want to come and sing hymns? And this is all in my dream. Lead me into this room. I walk into the... So I said... And on this song sheet was a, a, a Catholic song, which I was familiar with because I was brought up Catholic. And the word said, Turn to me, O turn and be saved, says the Lord, for I am God. And I woke up. Right after I read those words, I woke up. And I just began to cry. And I said, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. All I know is I know I'm not going in the right direction. And I need you. And I'm ready to do whatever you want. I'm ready to do whatever you want. I don't know what to do, but I'm ready to do whatever you want. And at that point, I was all in. It didn't matter the cost. I was ready to follow him. And that was almost 18 years ago. You see, the Father... He speaks to us. And He leads us. And in that moment, you know, and maybe a lot of you have had similar moments where, you know, um, you remember before you came to the Lord or just right before, you just felt the emptiness and it just came to the forefront of your consciousness that, man, I feel like my life is empty. I feel like my life has no purpose. I feel like my life is going nowhere. And then God begins to, that's God beginning to draw you. And then he draws you toward his son. Like, in, like Jesus says in John 6, 44, no, no one can come to the Father, or no one can come to me, excuse me, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Right? Jesus then calls us to leave that old life. To leave our fathers standing there in a fishing boat with the hired servants. And to become his disciples, to follow him, to spend time with him, to listen to him, and to learn from him. Getting back to Simon and Andrew, and and really James and John as well, when Jesus called them, he indicated that if they would respond to his call, their lives would be changed. And that's what I really wanted in that moment. I wanted my life to change. And that's what he's saying. If we read the text, he's saying, your lives are going to be changed. So, you know, going back to verse 17 of that, of that passage, you know, in Mark chapter 1, my version reads, And Jesus said to them, Follow me, fishers of men. Make you become fishers of men. I will make you become. In other words, you will be changed. You will be transformed into something other than what you are now. They would become like him. They too would become fishers of men. 
So how are we being transformed, you may ask? Or maybe you didn't, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Paul describes the process in Romans 12 too, and I know that Pastor Mark has shared this before. I like how the Amplified Version, uh, Bible version reads. Romans 12 too. And the Amplified Version says, And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes. Now that's a mouthful, but there's a lot of truth in there. Let me read that again. And do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs, but be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually by the renewing of your mind, focusing on godly values and ethical attitudes. As we follow Jesus, we're watching Him. We're listening to Him and to His teaching. And then... Our narratives about God, about the world, begin to be changed through His Word and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, progressively. We participate in those soul training exercises that help us to live according to that, those new narratives. We need to build new muscles, so to speak. And those soul training exercises, the the prayer time, the fasting. All those things help us to live according to those new narratives. And and we do all this in the context of a community of disciples, right? We're living and we're working on this and we're following Jesus together, right? Just as the, the 12 disciples did back then. We're doing it together in community. We're all disciples here. Following Him together, learning together, growing together, maturing together. But, this isn't just a part-time gig. It's not just part... You see, becoming a disciple... And I think that this is a critical transition that many of us miss. You see, there's a lot of people out there that will count the cost and fixate... They fixate on what they're gonna, what they may lose or what they think they're gonna lose in the process and they, and they never fully make that transition. I, I remember, I, I do remember having thoughts thinking, man, I don't think I'm gonna make it two weeks in this place. You know, when I started going back to church, I went back to church and, um, it was a Bible believing church. It was, it's Oak Creek Assembly of God. And any of you know Pastor Jerry Brooks, he preaches the Word of God and he's serious about it. And I was sitting there thinking to myself, whoa, I don't know if I'm going to make it two weeks doing this. And I was counting the cost, too, and I was thinking to myself, man, what am I going to do if I'm a Christian? I can't go out and have the same fun with my friends. I can't even listen to the same music. Boy, I'm going to have to listen to some really boring music. That was my perception, right? It wasn't accurate, but it was my perception. But some people get stuck at that point, of counting the cost and saying, well, I don't know, that doesn't look fun. That looks hard. And they never fully make that transition. Others of us miss that a transition needs to be made altogether. 
And so we remain at the center of our universe and we add our faith as just one of the many planets revolving around us. Can't be that way. And it's critical because if we miss this transition, the consequences are really grave. You know, we could sit in the pews and never truly become what God intends us to be. What a waste that would be. We could spend years and decades sitting in pews every Sunday and miss, completely miss what God intends us to be. Or we could become one of the unfortunate people in Jesus' parable of the sower. Everybody remember the, the parable of the sower? I'll read a portion of it. It's in, you can find it in Matthew 13. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the fold, some sixty and some thirty. And then he goes on to say, Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away or snatches away, excuse me, what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whose seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown in rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises, because of the world, because of the word, there's nothing going on like that right now, is there in America? Immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So let's focus on a couple of these people and what happened when they received the word of the kingdom or the word of God, the gospel. The one on whom the seed was sown, uh, seed was sown on the rocky places, he hears the call of discipleship to f- come and follow me. The call to leave behind the old life. The call to be transformed. And then what happens? He immediately receives it with joy, it says. Gets all excited. Yes, I want this, I want this. But it's only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away, right? So whenever he runs into a troubled situation, or is confronted, or is mocked, or is, or is teased about his faith, or it just appears to become too hard, or, or it's too scary to be a Christian in the United States right now, he falls away, she falls away. What about the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns? They hear the same call, but the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. 
My friends, it is becoming more and more difficult by the day to live for Christ here in the West and specifically in the United States, isn't it? Enemies of the faith seem to be multiplying quickly, whether it be in the media or in the... Our soul continues to work tirelessly or just out of which compete and conflict with those of the kingdom of God. We're bombarded with those things. We're challenged with those things every day. That is why we need to become fully devoted followers of Christ, true disciples. We need to hold on to that. And we need to not let go of that. And that's why, you know, when I, when I first started praying about this message, about this word, I felt the, the word disciple. I need to start calling my, myself a disciple of Christ because that's what I am. This is how Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 puts it, and I know this is familiar as well. Let us also see us, uh, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Those are the things that Jesus was just talking about, the thorns and the rocky places, right? And the soil with no depth. Let us lay aside every encumbrance, all the things that hinder us, all the weights that we carry, and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Of our faith. I love the phrase fixing our eyes on Jesus. His disciples follow him, watching and observing him only, not looking around to the left or to the right. And I like to compare this to um, young children learning to walk. And I always think about my two boys and, and them learning to walk. And, and usually there's you know, how, how does it start out? Usually one parent's holding them up, you know, on two legs, and, and the other one's either saying, come to daddy, come to daddy, or here's mommy, here's mommy, come on. I know you've been there. And, and, and they get all excited, and they're smiling, and they slowly and clumsily start start taking steps toward that parent who's bidding them to come, right? And what do they do? Have you ever noticed where their attention is during that time? They're not looking to the left. They're not looking to the right. They're looking at that parent who's got arms wide open, calling to them, bidding them to come. And they're just... To some extent, that's what I picture when I, see, when I read these words, when he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus... We're not looking at anything else. We're just clumsily, you know, stumbling along trying to get to Jesus who's bidding us come and follow Him. With that being said, I don't want to miss talking about the destination of this discipleship journey. So we'll talk about that for a few minutes and we'll wrap up. The Father draws us. Jesus calls to us. We count the cost. We, we leave our old lives behind and continually follow Him. But I wanted to show you, because you know, as I started to wrap this up and thinking about how I was going to wrap this up, I noticed a common theme in all the scriptures that I have read previously in this message. And the one common theme was, was that there was a lot to be gained by following the disciples' path. There was a lot to be gained by following the disciples' path. And so I don't want this to be all doom and gloom and this is going to be hard and i got to count the cost and... 
and, and I, I've got so much, thing, so many things working against me. I want to fixate, fix my eyes on Jesus, and walk towards Him, and not pay attention to anything else. And there is so much to be gained by following that disciple's path. In our original text, the one that we started out with, the fishermen that followed Jesus did become fishers of men, didn't they? We know their story. It began in the Gospels, Jesus sending them out. And they're, they're ministering to people and casting out demons and, and healing people. And, and they come back to Jesus all excited like, you'll never believe what happened. And he's like, yeah, I know what happened. But they're all excited. And God's using them in mighty ways. And then we get to Acts, right? And, and they start going out. And they start going to other areas and other places and ministering to other people. And they're still, you know, they're healing people. Some of them are getting arrested. And then God is breaking them out of jail. And they have all these victories and they're celebrating. And the church is growing. And there's more and more disciples. And the epistles, same thing. Paul and John and Peter, they're, James, they're all writing to this, these communities of disciples. Right? So much to be gained. Man, wouldn't you like to have just a fraction of that impact on the world for Christ? What about Luke 9? We read Luke 9 and it says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up the cross daily and follow me. That's pretty heavy. He says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. You know, if you want to save that old life, eventually you're going to lose it anyways. But whoever loses profited if he gains the whole world and will save holy angels. And he says, he concludes by this saying, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of you standing here listening to my words who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That's pretty awesome. Can you imagine Jesus standing there telling you that? Romans 12, I read Romans 12, right? Be transformed and progressively changed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And I like what the Amplified Version adds, in His plan and purpose for you. You find out that He calls you to this life of discipleship, but it is good. His will is good and His will is perfect. And you will find joy and you will find contentment being a disciple. It's worth the investment of the cost that we pay. Right? What about Matthew 13? I just read that one. Just to remind you, and the one whom the seed was sown on the good soil, I hope that is each and every one of us in here. This is the man who hears the word and understands it who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Your life is fruitful. What about Hebrews 12? I read that one as well. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, 
And what that means is Jesus endured a lot, but he knew what would come in the end. He knew where his path would lead. For the joy set before him, according to the plan of God, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And, you know, the implication here being that our race leads us to the same finish line that Jesus had crossed already, right? And so when we finish our race, when we cross our finish line, we will be where he is. Amen? Man, we have so much waiting for us if we just trust God and walk that disciple's path. Friends, the cost of discipleship is great, but what we stand to gain is so much greater that the cost really pales in comparison. We're called to be disciples. Each and every one of us are called to be disciples. A word that really has lost its true meaning in, in modern society. As disciples, we, we leave our, our old lives to follow Christ. We leave our, our businesses. We leave our families. We, we leave our dad standing there in the boat staring at us going, uh, we were just about to shove off and now you're walking away. And as we learn from watching him and listening to him, we're transformed. And as we follow him in life, we follow him in death and will follow him in the resurrection. Amen? We are disciples. Amen? We are disciples. Hallelujah. I wanted to end by just giving us all a moment. A moment is to really enter into in with God. And, and I believe that the Holy Spirit has been speaking to some of us saying, you know what? You know, you've been following me, but following half-hearted. And, you know, the, the thorns and the tares are growing up around you. And, and, and you're, you're planted on the rocks. You're, the seed is on the rocks. And, and you're not exactly where you, where you need to be. And I want you, I believe that God is saying, I want you in this moment, right now, like a little child trying to learn to walk, Walking with, you know, clumsily stumbling along toward that parent with outstretched arms. My, my arms are outstretched right now. I want you to stop looking to the left, stop looking to the right, and fix your eyes on me. And let them remain just fixed on me there. Because I want you to be a true disciple. And maybe, you know, some of you counted the cost and were willing to pay it at one point in time and now maybe are, are you know, have gone back and are, are second-guessing that. Don't second. And maybe some of us, those many planets orbiting around us, revolving around us, in our universe where we're at the center still. And we need to let go of that and we need to make Him the center of our universe. We need to completely say, I am for once once and for all done with that old life. I'm looking ahead. I'm looking to Jesus. And I'm following Him. 
So let's just take a moment um, to enter in and just pray and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to us. Lord, I just thank you for your word today. It, It is becoming increasingly more difficult to be a Christian in in today's society. But it's only difficult if we're not fully committed to being a disciple of Christ. It's only difficult if we take our eyes off of you instead of fixing our eyes on you. And so, Lord, we all, myself included, I today, I'm telling you, Lord, that I am a disciple of Christ. I will keep my eyes fixed on Him. I won't look back at my old life. I will keep moving ahead. And I want You to continue to help me to grow and to mature and to learn each and every day. Because my journey is not over as a disciple. I don't stop following until I meet You face to face. We thank You for that promise, O Lord God, because the cost does seem great to our eyes, O Lord God. Lord, You just call us to to say, You know what? Don't worry about that because what You have to gain is so much greater. And I thank You for calling. I'm a disciple. And I thank You for calling me and inviting me to walk this path with You. I can't wait for what lies ahead. Lord, for those who are struggling with that or, or you know, maybe just never really truly had a, a, a good grasp or vision of what being a disciple really means, I pray you would bless them today. I pray you would encourage them today. I pray you would strengthen them today. And strengthen their resolve. And Lord, I pray you'd give them peace. Lord, I just pray and I, I, I pray that as we go out from here, O oh Lord God, when we go home and when we rise in the morning and we're brushing our teeth and looking at ourselves in the mirror, we can still say, I'm a disciple. I'm a disciple of Christ. And we remember what that means. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for leading us. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for transforming us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.